Lord says to us in his word that we are to be self-controlled and alert for the enemy. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We are to resist him standing firm in the faith. Our brothers and sisters all throughout the world are enduring the same kind of suffering. It is indeed the word of God that says to us that we are not ignorant of the wiles of the devil. The devil's schemes. And um, just the Lord, um, the enemy, uh, just just working on my heart and mind this morning. I just feel distracted. And um, I would love just to maybe just spend a few moments in prayer for my own soul. And, and if you would join in praying, not only for me, but I know that, right, he works against all of us, right? And so... I think we all should be praying for one another this morning, just that God would help our hearts and minds be focused on his word and to hear the truth of the gospel. And so I, I just I desperately need just to pray again for a moment. So would you bow with me? Father, we know that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but you have come that we might have life. Father, you said that you have given us the shield of faith by which through it, we might extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Lord, we know that our faith is weak, but thou art strong. And so, Lord, we pray now that you would strengthen us. I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room, Lord Jesus, who may be also experiencing demonic attacks from the enemy, who has come in in any number of ways against them in their heart and mind to distract them from the truth of the gospel, to rob this very moment of hearing your word. Just as Brother Todd prayed, God, that we might be good soil. We know that the enemy comes to snatch the seed that is sown. And so, Lord, I realize that in this moment is a moment of spiritual war. And, Lord God, who is equal to such a task? Not me, Lord. None in this room. But, Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so, Lord, we call upon you now that in the power of your Holy Spirit, that greater is he that is in us than he who is in the world. And so, Father, I pray for all of my brothers and sisters that you would strengthen them, that you would help them abide in the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would give them ears to hear. Oh, God, that you would give me strength, Lord, to just protect my mind now as the enemy, even as I pray, God. He wars against my mind to distract me, to discourage me, Lord, to come against me. But I know again, God, that you are greater. And so, Father, I pause and I look to you and I just pray, oh, God, that the power of your Holy Spirit would come and that you would overcome the work of the enemy. Lord, strengthen us now to resist him standing firm in the faith. Lord, your word has been instructed to us. Lord, help us hold fast to it. God, please, please, Lord, please. We're weak. We're your children. We're your, we sang earlier, we, we, we're, the sh- we're your sheep. We're weak. We're frail. So God, please help me, Lord. Please help me this morning. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we are in Genesis chapter 18, uh, making our way again through the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. So I want to encourage you, if you have your copy of God's Word, to turn there with us. Um, As you turn there, I want to, uh, the likelihood is, right, if you've ever been to Chick-fil-A, you probably at some point heard them reply back to you, my what? My pleasure, right? But what you might be interested to find out is the owner of Chick-fil-A, or the original founder, Truett Cathy, right, is that he came about this phrase not through his own thoughts, but at one point um, in a history past, he was at a Ritz-Carlton. And he simply walked up to the, uh, someone that was serving, and in response to him, they just simply said, my pleasure. 
And it stuck with him. And he decided, hey, listen, you know what? That's going to be a part of how our identity is as an organization. It's going to be a five-star service, right? This kind of Ritz-Carlton service at a chicken restaurant. And that's part of how this chicken empire, right, was, was rooted and built, this idea of serving. And obviously we know that he was a believer and a follower. But this idea of my pleasure. And I think that story reminds us that just sometimes one single encounter can transform, right, an organization, a person, a people, there's just something about this transformational encounter. And today, as we come to Genesis 18, there's going to be an encounter that Abraham and Sarah are going to have with the Lord. And we're going to see how the Lord's been already encountering them and this ongoing work of transformation. But I think we often ought to pause and wonder, like, man, why are we so often not transformed? Like, what happens that causes us to wrestle with things and wonder, like, How can we who know the Lord and worship him so often doubt him? Or why do we who profess to know the God who came to us when we were his enemies, yet we have so little love or prayer for our enemies? Like, God, what's going on in our hearts? And I believe Genesis 18 is just reminding us of this truth that a real encounter with the real Lord leads to real transformation. A real encounter with the real Lord leads to a real transformation. We need to ask, like, who is this God who can actually transform our hearts? Who is this God who is able? And I think Genesis 18 shows us three truths. The Lord's power, the Lord's promise, and the Lord's prophet. The Lord's power, the Lord's promise, and the Lord's prophet here in Genesis 18. So again, if you have your copy of God's Word, you want to make your way there. As we wrestle with this, a real encounter leads to real transformation. And that's what's been happening with Abraham and Sarah. We we first encountered them back in Genesis chapter 11. But, man, we've just been seeing little by little they being transformed. Now, listen, we've seen the reality, right? The Bible doesn't hide things. It reveals character flaws of everyone except for Jesus. Right? I mean, Abraham and Sarah have struggled with belief. They've had doubts. They've schemed, right, another way other than God's plan that Hagar would be the way in which this would come about. I mean, they've struggled and doubts. But guess what? Little by little, God is continually transforming this man and woman. And we see this unfolding even today in our text. So let's turn now to Genesis chapter 18 and see this first truth, the Lord's power. The Lord's power, Genesis chapter 18. This is the first 15 verses of the text. Listen to it again, the first eight verses. And the Lord appeared to him, appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre, sorry, the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent to, of the door, the tent door, to meet them, and bowed himself to the earth, and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent of, to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour, and eat it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf. That he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Hospitality was major for the culture of that day, right? Welcome in strangers, outsiders. This was part of what was expected, but it often revealed the character of the person, right? When you see someone showing hospitality like this, you're like, man, there, there's something noble about them. And so there's some sense in which we should be drawing attention to this to say, man, Abraham is setting a great example for us. 
But it's something's interesting, right, that Abraham doesn't know that we know as a reader, right? You heard it back there in verse 4. And the who appears to him? The Lord, right? I mean, there's these three visitors show up, but it says the Lord's coming. And there's many questions about that. Maybe you heard it even the song, right? We praise Father, Spirit, or Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? There's some sense in which you're seeing this imagery. And we know that in Genesis 19 that two of these specifically are angels. And there's interest about who is maybe this third one. And again, those, those are maybe wrestlings that go to take you home with to study more. But nonetheless, I think it's interesting, right, that we, the reader, know something that Abraham doesn't. Abraham just recognizes these three men as strangers. But it's ironic the way he treats them, right? I mean, consider that in verse 2. He looks up and he sees them. And that's what it does there. He runs and he bows himself to the earth. Then that same word bowed, if it's used in other moments where God is present, it's actually a word for worship. Further, notice what he calls them, right? He says in verse 3, O Lord, right? He refers to them, Lord or Master. Again, maybe more than obviously he knows in that moment. But nonetheless, he's speaking it. Further, in verse 3 and then verse 5, he, he calls himself continually, just says, you know what, your servant, your servant. That's what he keeps referring to himself as. And then he goes above and beyond, right? I mean, it's not just simply some cakes that Sarah's making. He goes and has a tender calf, right? And this sacrifice is being made. What's the point of all this? I think it highlight, highlights Abraham's generosity, but ultimately it's his heart to love whomever God puts in front of him. How are you doing with that? Just loving whoever God puts in front of him. Again, you and I know, like, man, Abraham, listen, Lord, there's something else greater. These aren't just three strangers showing up. I mean, in fact, that's what Hebrews 13, 2 says to us. This, this epic verse, I think it refers back to this moment. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained who? Angels unawares. It's an interesting moment, right? To contemplate. Again, that doesn't mean that every person on the side of the road is an angel seeing how you'll treat them, but it's possible that there have been some angels on the side of the road. There's moments when, right, there's just a sense in which Abraham, right, he doesn't know that this is these, these godly figures, these are just strangers, but guess what? The reminder is this is how you and I should be treating the strangers and those that God brings in our path. Why? Because that's how God treats us. We're following his example that we should seek to show hospitality. Maybe this morning you're wondering, like, well, what does hospitality even look like? I think there's some practical ways. One is just welcoming or greeting everyone you meet. Is, is that your natural habit, right? When you walk down the store, right, down the aisle of the store, are you looking to greet the people you meet? I mean, think about it this morning. Have you spent time intentionally greeting and welcoming others in this congregation? Or do you find your, your pew and you're just like locked in, not thinking, man? I think we should be looking, saying, Lord, who around me might I speak to this morning? Who might I talk to or engage with? Hospitality is showing good, asking good questions or being just a good listener in conversation. It's inviting, surely, just as Abraham does here, inviting people to eat, maybe to your home or to other places to enjoy a meal. Young people, it's looking for ways at school to invite outsiders and include them, right? Whether that's on the playground or as you go to lunch or wherever it may be, just looking to welcome people. But there's more going on in this story than just hospitality, right? That's not just what's happening here. In some way, as I was talking to a brother just a few minutes ago as we talked about this text, listen, this, this text in a way is a doorway into one of the great stories of the Bible, Sodom and Gomorrah. And it reveals so much of what's happening here that ultimately shows us the Lord's power. So let's pick up, if you would, verse 9. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in, her t in the tent. 
The Lord said, I'll surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why'd Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I'll return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Right? In this moment, the Lord is showing his power. And so the Lord's revealing that power of who he is and his ability here to do what right, only God can do. And so I think there's just some intentional things that are being shown. First, God's omniscience or his all-knowing power is displayed. Why? Because did you notice that he knows the name of this woman that he's never met, right? In verse 9 there, he calls her Sarah. And it doesn't call her Sarah, right? He already knows that her name's changed. There's some sense in which this man knows things about them that other people wouldn't just know. Secondly, I think not only is his perfect knowledge is revealed, I think the fact that he is what we might define as omnipresent. Did you notice back in verse 10 that it says that Sarah is, notice what it says there, verse 10. It says, Sarah, your wife, and Sarah was listening at the tent. Notice what it says, the tent door behind him. He can't see her, right? But he knows that she laughs. And the indication is from the text, right? Because the text says in verse 12 that she laughed to herself. Like this isn't some seemingly out loud or something, right? There's something happening internally, and he knows, right? This God is all present. He's all knowing. But further, look, I think that the sense of this omnipotence, this all powerful, right? Because what's verse 11 say to us about Sarah, right? Well, it says Eras, or Abraham, he's, he's old, right? He's advanced, they're advanced in years. And the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. In fact, Romans chapter 4, verse 19 is going to say to us, Paul says to us there, that Abraham was as good as dead. This is the hopeless of hopeless situations. And into that walks the all-knowing, all-present, almighty God who asks the question to Abraham and Sarah that I surely believe he wants to ask to you and I, and it's there in verse 14, is anything to what, church? Anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? What a question to contemplate for this moment. I mean, again, because you, you have to consider, right? Abraham and Sarah, she has, I mean, the text is saying to us, she has a dead womb and a dead husband. Like, there, there's, there's just no way this is going to happen. And I think the text has been pressing that from back in Genesis chapter 3. Like, we wrestle with that question, like, when Adam and Eve took of the tree, they said, the day you do of that, you'll surely die. But they, they didn't die. I mean, yes, spiritually they died. But, like, why didn't they die immediately? And Genesis 3 and 15 gave us a glimpse. It said that from this woman, from the seed of the woman, which is interesting, right? The seed of the woman is going to come one who's going to ultimately crush Satan and crush death. And that's the imagery that's happening here. This womb is dead. It's barren. There's no hope. Her husband's old. She's old. There's no chance. But from this barren womb, this place of death is actually going to come life. And it's saying to us there's a bigger picture going to happen, right? I mean, we can't just stop in Genesis 18 and not realize, man, that the ultimately there's going to come another place of barrenness. Another place of death. It's beyond. I mean, if this is beyond, this, this is like, if this is beyond hope, this is the hopeless of hopeless, right? Because the Son of God... He dies on the cross, doesn't he? 
He's crucified. He's, he's buried in the tomb Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I mean, there's, there's no hope. It's three days. But from the place of death, the Lord's going to ask you and I, is anything too hard for the Lord? From the place of death, He is going to raise His Son back to everlasting life. Saying to us, beloved, with God all things are possible. Death is not the end. The barren womb doesn't have the final say. This is the Almighty, the God of all power and authority. So might I ask this morning, what circumstances right now in your life have you stopped believing that God can do all things? Maybe it's The Lord can't use me to serve in that ministry. I'm too old. The Lord can't rescue my child from addiction. They're too far gone. The Lord can't save our marriage. Man, it is just, it's beyond hope. The Lord can't give us a child. We've been waiting for far too long. The Lord can't heal me. I'm too sick this time. Whatever it is that you are facing in today's text compels you and I to ask that epic question of verse 14 that the Lord asked of Abraham and Sarah. Is anything too hard for the Lord? The Lord is displaying His power and His might, but now the scene is going to change and we're going to discover another glorious truth. Secondly, the Lord's promise. The Lord's promise. Look what it says. Verse 16, Then the men set out from there. And they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. If The Lord asked an important question, right? It's an interesting one. Verse 17. He says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Pastor Jim Hamilton says that this serves to reveal that Abraham isn't merely a servant of God, but in fact, a friend of God. I mean, that's what Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse John 15, 15, I think, right? Yeah, John 15, 15. Yeah, no longer do I call you servant for a servant does not know his master's business. But instead, I have chosen to call you what? Friend for everything the father has made known to me. I have revealed unto you. This sense in which this relationship that Abraham has with God isn't just some cold, distant relationship, but it's like the deepest intimacy between the closest of friends and beyond that. I think it's why we sing songs, Oh, what a friend I have in Jesus. But what's at the heart of this sharing this with Abraham? Look at it, Wood, back with me. Verse 18. He again asked the question, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Verse 18, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation. And listen to this statement here again, this refrain that keeps coming to us. And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. He's going to bless the nations in and through him. Right? God is going to use, he's this instrument through which the blessing of the nations comes. And ultimately, yes, through Christ. But maybe we got to ask, like, what's Abraham actually done to earn this? That's what he says, verse 19, 4. He says, here's the reasoning. 4, he says, I have chosen him. Abraham hasn't done to earn it. He hasn't 
garnered it by his good behavior, right? I mean, we've seen it right again and again. He's lied. He's, he, they, they've, they've gone with Hagar, the plan, plan B, other than God's plan, right? I mean, there's moments when Sarah's like doubting, struggling, right? There's this, this fighting in the family, all these things, right? I mean, Abraham's story is really our story. It's the words of 1 John. We love him because why? He first loved us. That's what he says, for I've chosen him. Like it, We love in response because he first loved us. And God's blessing, listen to what he says here, for I have chosen him that or so that, look what he's, what he's going to do, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Right? This is no accident. The Lord has come to Abraham, right, that he might command and teach his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice. I think in light of the context of what's going to happen as we turn the page to Genesis 19 in a few moments or next week is the reality. Like this story is to be a warning throughout all the generations. If you think it is a small thing to reject the word of God, if you think it is a small thing to follow your own heart's desires, if you think it's a small thing to pursue the ways of the world, this story is a word that was... Abraham sees and reveals that he passes on to his family that ultimately by the power of the Holy Spirit has come to you and I today to say, be warned. Judgment is coming. And I think this is a story that Abraham and his family, again, the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to write it down. Because in some way, why don't we just make our jump right on in to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? All these things are unfolding To show us, listen, this is a warning for the people of God. Do not follow our sinful hearts. Do not follow this culture and this world. It will bring everlasting judgment. It's a warning. This is how we're to keep the way of the Lord. By doing righteousness and judgment. So listen, there's some pattern here, right? I mean, the Lord's made a promise. And then there was obedience on Abraham's part. And now there's fulfillment of the promise. Look what he says at the end of verse 19. Again, verse 19 is so rich. So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Right? The Lord's made these great promises to Abraham. That doesn't mean that Abraham puts his feet up and just coasts into the sunset. He's expected to be a a godly man, to train a godly home, ultimately a God-fearing community, to follow the Lord. To be clear, church, God's promises aren't a license for us to be lazy. No, that God's promises are the assurance that he will bring about what he has promised. You see, for the Puritans of the 16 and 1700s, it was the home that was the primary place of learning the Bible and being instructed in morality. In fact, one of of the Puritan pastors, that's almost a tongue twister, a Puritan pastor, his name was Thomas Doolittle. He gave this charge to the fathers that I think was fitting in light of this command of that we are to command our children and our household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. This one he says here, again, as he, I'm going to quote his words. Again, words to a fathers. It says, The fathers ought to read the Scriptures to their families and instruct their children and servants in the matters and doctrines of salvation. Therefore, they are to pray in and with their families. No man that will not deny the Scripture can deny the unquestionable duty of reading the Scripture in our houses, teaching and instructing them out of the Word of God. That was the compelling argument. Fathers, your homes, are you leading? It was the call to Abraham. This is the call to us. 
Obviously, there's women that live in homes where there's no father or the father's not leading the ladies. This comes to you to lead. For those of you who grew up in a Christian home, that wasn't by accident. God intended for your parents, your grandparents to instruct you in the way. If that's you this morning, you ought to praise God for that. But others of you, you didn't grow up in a Christian home. There was nobody saying, hey, we need to go to church this morning or read our Bibles or pray or talk about these issues that we're facing in the culture. But by God's grace, here you are right now. Is it? Is it this day? Is it you? That God has brought you here to say, hey, it's time. There'll be a change in this family. There'll be a difference going ahead. You see, I think the word of God comes to each of us. And Pastor Doolittle is saying to us, we ought to do much in our homes by reading the word and praying daily. But I think the implication is not just simply here in verse 19 for the home. I think that it's also for the church as well. Wow, because look what he says here in verse 19, right? So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. But notice what he says before this, right? He says, look at, he says, the children of his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing, notice that statement there, by doing righteousness and justice. It's not just simply knowing, but we are to be doing it. And so I want to ask you, when is there time with other believers that you're gathering to say, hey, we're, are we doing the word together? Not just do we know the word together, we do the word together. Again, that's one of the reasons in community groups we intentionally have that time to ask questions. Are you reading the word? Tell us about your fighting, battling with sin. What, what areas of temptation or struggles are coming your way? Who have you shared the gospel with? And other questions. Why? I mean, it's not because this is like, well, oh man, this is what we think we ought to do. No, this was the instruction thousands of years ago to Abraham. That we're not simply to, to hear and know the word, but we ought to be doing it. So we ought to be asking one another. You ought to be talking about it in our homes. We ought to be talking about it as a church. Are we gathering to say, are we doing the word? See, it's the Lord's power that ultimately by the Lord's promise that's going to stir finally and last here the Lord's prophet. Listen to what happens here. Again, this is in some way a gateway into what's going to happen next week, Lord willing, if we gather in Genesis chapter 19. It says, verse 20, Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me and if not, I will know. Now, again, this is not the first time we've heard the statement, I will go down to see, right? We heard it back in Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. It's not an indication that God can't see from heaven or he's too far away. He doesn't know or hear. It's a word of saying judgment's coming. God's saying, I'm coming down. I'm, I'm coming to bring judgment to Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because he says it is a place where their sin is very grave. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, right? So the two of the, two of the three men leave, right, who we're going to pick up with next week, these two angels that are going to go ultimately to Lot's home. Um, but it says, so the two men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood, still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near. Listen to this great moment of this, this, this prophetic moment, right, even some sense of priestly moment. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there's 50 righteous within Sodom and Gomorrah. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you 
to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. So two of the three men leave. And again, Abraham starts to do, as we're going to see in the coming verses, intercede, right? He's doing what other great prophets before have done, right? I mean, these are the roles of men like Moses or Samuel or Jeremiah or Amos. But what's interesting is, is they are interceding on behalf of God's people, the nation of Israel, the people of Judah. This is Abraham interceding on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a, it's a moment, right? I mean, of him appealing to God on behalf of this wicked place and these wicked people. I mean, Abraham, again, is, is seemingly in this prophetic role. In Genesis chapter 20, verse 7, the Lord himself calls Abraham a prophet. But what's the basis of his appeal? Well, three different times, verse 23, verse 24, and 25, Abraham points out that it's not right to treat the righteous like the wicked. And then he comes to this climactic statement in verse 25. Listen, this, this is one that you need to take with you. It's one in which it gives you a lens through which you ought to view the world and circumstances and experiences in your life. Listen to this. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Or your translation may say, do what is right. What a question. Shall not the judge of the, all the earth do what is right? Abraham is coming to the heart of God. God, you are righteous and just. You are not one who will condemn the innocent and pardon the guilty. That's not who you are. You see, Supreme Court justices in our country, before they take their position, they take this very oath. Listen to what it says. They say, I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will administer justice without respect to persons and do equal right to the poor and to the rich and that I will faithfully and impartially discharge and perform all the duties incumbent upon me as this justice under the Constitution and laws of the United States, so help me God. Abraham says to God that you are one who will administer justice faithfully and impartially, the very thing that our judges and the judges throughout the Bible were expected to do. Guess what? This doesn't mean that we won't face hard times, that we won't be treated unfairly. But it's a reminder that in the midst of this, that God's working. That he's the judge of all the earth and he's going to do what's just and right. And again, we might hear Peter saying to us, right, that Jesus, in the midst of his suffering, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He continued trusting the Lord. I don't know what you're facing, but you can trust and believe in this anchor that Abraham had, that the judge of all the earth will do what is right. I mean, this is what the expectation was. Proverbs seventeen fifteen. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Abraham said, Lord, I know that's not you. So listen now to Abraham's prayer, verse 26 to 33. And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. So again, hear that, right? Abraham is a friend of God. God's revealing himself to him. But man, that doesn't mean that we come to God casually. As if we're talking to anybody, nobody. There's some sense of like there's humility. Yes, there's a deep intimacy we have with the Lord, but there's also this tension, right? That is the word of God says that, that God is in heaven and we are on earth. So therefore, let our words be few. Be careful, right? That we don't speak to God as if, again, he's a nobody. Ah, he says, who am but dust and ashes. Suppose fifty. Five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? And he said, the Lord says, I'll not destroy it if I find 45 there. 
Again, Abraham speaks to him and says, suppose 40 are found there. He answers, for the sake of 40, I'll not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answers, I'll not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I'll not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let the Lord not be angry and I'll speak again. But this once, suppose 10 are found there. And the Lord answers, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. You see, we're going to get to it more next week, Lord willing, but some assume that Abraham is just simply praying because Lot is there, but we know that Lot's family doesn't comprise 50, right? There's some sense in which Abraham is, is, is crying out on behalf of this, this wicked place. In fact, what's startling about this text is Abraham's right again praying for Sodom and Gomorrah. A place that throughout the rest of the pages of Scripture, if you hear Sodom and Gomorrah, it's synonymous with great sin and great judgment. But here's God's prophet going to God on behalf of them. He's going to behalf of the nations, even the wicked ones, asking God to have mercy and grace on them. Might this say to us that God is indeed serious, indeed Jesus is serious, when he says to us that we are to love our enemies and pray for what? Those who persecute us. I think Abraham's story is reminded that we aren't just to pray for our family or people that we like or are like us. No, we're to pray for people of that other political party and those positions that we sometimes despise. I want to ask you this morning, how are you doing praying for that person at work that you're at odds with? This text compels us to pray for them. What about that enemy in the culture on social media? Someone who's opposing the very truth that you stand for. This text in Jesus' word said to us that we are not to write them off, but to write them on our heart and pray and cry out to them. Why? Because we too were once God's enemies. We once were. Unfortunately for Sodom and Gomorrah, there aren't even ten righteous there. This story is kind of like, as we're going to see next week, Noah and the flood. Noah and his family were saved. Lot and a few from his family will be saved, and that's it. I think with this question doesn't this story cause us to contemplate if we would be saved would you be saved will you be saved you see the reality is we're wicked I mean the Bible says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God all of us deserve God's judgment But the good news for us is, as there was a greater intercessor than even Abraham. There's one that not just simply pleaded with his words, but he pleaded with his own blood, beloved. Jesus came to rescue us in the midst of our wickedness and our sin. Right? Not, not when we cleaned up our lives, like, oh man, I got it together. No, in the midst of it. We were rightfully condemned. We, we, we don't deserve the mercy and grace of God. But Paul says to us in Romans 8 and 34, who is to condemn? Who's going to condemn us? Look what he says. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who's doing this very action of Abraham. He does it perpetually forever. His life is the testimony. His blood is the verification. That one's mine. What a moment. God would claim you and me as his sons and daughters. To save us from the judgment that is to come to spare us and bring us out. What hope, beloved. 
Doesn't that say to us that though our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. Hallelujah! We're rescued! We're rescued! That is if you're in Christ. To the unbeliever this morning, to the skeptic, to the agnostic, the atheist, the pagan, however you may define yourself, this text warns that there is a righteous judgment that is coming. And there is only one way to be protected from it. Again, it's someone greater than Abraham who will come and plead on your behalf. Who lived the perfect sinless life in the midst of great wickedness. He was sinless. And he goes to the cross not paying for his own sin. So that as 2 Corinthians 5 says that God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us. That in him this morning you might become the very righteousness of God. This morning to the unbeliever, listen to this hope by grace. By God's kindness, His forgiveness, His mercy, you can go from being God's enemy to becoming God's eternal friend. It's the hope of the gospel. I urge you this morning, don't leave. Please, don't go to hell. Please, I urge you this morning. Please, it's not by chance you're here. God has brought you here to hear His Word, to see the beauty of His Son, and to see that He loves you. And He sent His only begotten Son for you, that you should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's the hope of this gospel. To the church, I think this text must cause us to contemplate that Abraham doesn't use his relationship with the Lord for his own benefit, but for the benefit of others, for the benefit of Sodom and Gomorrah. Mercy, I need to be more like Abraham. I wonder as a church, what keeps us from being people of greater prayer and intercession like Abraham? In fact, what's stopping us this morning from going to the Lord and pleading for impossible Sodoms and Gomorrahs around us? The child who's enslaved to that addiction the family member who's living in sexual immorality, the friend ruled by homosexuality or transgender, all the other great struggles that you and I are facing. Beloved, is anything too hard for the Lord? Do we really believe that He can do all things? Abraham did, and it drove him to pray.